Hi everyone, and welcome back to The Blast Podcast, a show where we believe movies can be more than just movies. I'm your host, Steve Watts, joined as always by my partner in crime, The Raven, and today we're going to be talking about Mike Flanagan's newest Netflix limited series, The Fall of the House of Usher. Before we dive in, let's hear a word from our sponsor. As always, The Blast Podcast is presented by The Blast app, which is going to be available sooner than you may realize. Make sure you're following our Instagram page at Blast underscore movies underscore, our TikTok at Blast.movies, and our YouTube channel at Blast.movies to stay up to date on all of our latest content. There you'll find podcast clips, movie ticket reviews from Ty and myself, and up-to-date news on the progress of the app. Lastly, please make sure to check out our app's landing page at BlastMovies.net where you can learn more about what Blast is going to be. All right, Ty, what have you watched this week? Per usual, short and swift week for me. I went home this weekend, so only a couple of movies for me. But my dad and my brother hadn't seen Dead Reckoning. So what an easy way to watch that movie for the ninth time. So we rented it on Prime for 20 bucks or whatever it is and sat down for the like you know two hour and 40 minute runtime was again super pumped to show my dad this movie my roommate and i were just gnawing at the bit to see this movie when it came out i think we were anticipating it for like a year both loved it was super excited to show my dad we went to like hit chest and tries afterwards and he admitted to me 20 minutes into the lift like yeah wasn't a fan of that one broke my heart broke my heart but that's okay. Christ. I understood. I understood his take. He was a Fallout guy over Dr. I'm fine with it. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. move on. So that one, and then my brother and I went to go see a Haunting in Venice. It's kind of our thing to go to the movie theater when we can. But after your um, piss poor experience at a particular theater near where uh, near where we live, yeah. we decided to make the hike to AMC in Naperville. And oh. we went to, yep, they, they had a similar showtime. Like there was a 7.30 for Haunting in Venice at our theater in Yorkville or the AMC. It was like 7.45 or something. But it was weird. Saturday night, it was popping at Naperville. Popping. Why? There were maybe, maybe like 115-year-old Swifties and their moms just flooding this AMC. And my poor brother is like anxious beyond belief in this theater because there are so many girls his age and he's in Crocs and pajamas for Haunting in Venice. Jesus, poor dude. Yeah, I know. He was dressed like me. That's my fault. But So he's already on edge. So we sit Haunting in Venice. It's like one of the last theaters. It's packed. It's surprisingly packed. But he looked at me and sighed when six 15-year-olds, boys and girls, sat right behind us and started giggling and were on their phones and it was just we knew it was gonna be one of those one of those movies. Oh, no. Thirty minutes into the movie, he nudges me, he says, Dude, I can't take it. Can we please leave? He didn't want to say anything to them. So I was like, All right. We got up and left. I did not finish Haunting in Venice. We sat in the car and looked up who it was and that was that. Funny enough though, I, I will say it might be the better way to watch these movies. Just watch the setup to try and like make a guess as to who you think is the killer, and then 
just watch watch a like eight minute explanation video afterwards to see if you were right instead of sitting for two hours for a movie that's honestly kind of mid did we did we not pot on haunting in venice no we didn't because oh, i wow. never got a chance to see it i it was obviously one of your like what we've watched in a week but mm-hmm. no this was my first time watching yeah uh strongest of the trilogy for me still like a c yeah it was fine for what i what i saw i kind of liked orient express it was boring but i thought the the reveal was pretty cool yeah um yeah i I don't know that that was the first time i walked out of a theater since 2005 that was um and the story behind that it wasn't my fault i think i've told this story a hundred times but it's still great telling every single time it was for batman begins so i i want to tell the story properly my mom takes me to go see Batman Begins because the Batman she knows is Batman and Robin, Batman Forever, super campy stuff. Mm-hmm. Takes me to see this movie and Bruce falls into the, the sewer and all the bats come out. And apparently I was scared shitless. So she she wasted no time protecting her baby and dragged me out of the theater. What else, what other movie came out in 2005 that was PG-13? Uh, Revenge of the Sith. Revenge of the Sith. I was not allowed to go see Revenge of the Sith because I was scared of Batman Begins. Every one of my friends in kindergarten was talking about the battle between Anakin and Obi-Wan. And I didn't get to see it on the big screen. And I could have. But I wasn't man enough. I wasn't ready. (laughs) That kills me. I I was only three when that came out. Maybe two, depending on the time of the year. So, What, uh, What movie was like your first theater memory? Because I, obviously I remember Batman Begins, and I don't remember what year it came out, but I vividly remember going to Kendall 11 for SpongeBob the movie. I think it's either Happy Feet or Surf's Up. Happy Feet's another one, dude. There's another Two Penguin anim- movies. <laughs> Isn't there like a... Uh, maybe it's not animated. Is there like a scary seal movie with Paul Walker? I had a weird memory of that. Are you talking about Tusk? No, no. That's uh, <sighs> Justin Long, right? Yeah. No, there's a movie with Paul Walker, I swear. I swear, Or maybe like Dennis Quaid. It's one of those weird like B-lister, C-lister guys. I'm, I'm going to come back to this next pod. All right. Um, my week was a little more eventful than yours. Uh, obviously, I watched Fall of the House of Usher, watched it all straight through one night, eight hours, just continuous. Um, but I also watched a movie that um, Chris Ryan recommended on The Big Picture, he said that he loved Bad Things, which is a Shutter original. It's kind of a queer take on The Shining. I hated it. I I can't believe I can't believe it's a CR movie. Um, I thought the acting was bad. I thought the script was bad. I thought oh, the no. characters were bad. Like it was just bad. Um, so rare very unfortunate. CRL. There were a few really good scares in it though. What? A rare CRL. Yeah, I was I was just shocked that that was his type of movie i was expecting like a more like action from the start and it was more of a slow burn um regardless moving on i also watched absentia which i don't know if you know this this is mike flanagan's first ever movie it's got just an absolute shoestring budget like stuckman would have had for shelby oaks before he (laughs) squeezed the money out of his followers um (laughs) and it was interesting um the score really held it back. They had like this this funeral organ music playing, just like two tones the entire movie. It was just like boom, 
bum, <laughs> just back and forth. Um, and it kind of was like a what if Billy Goat's Gruff was a real life thing. You know that story? No. What? Three goats cross the bridge. Um, the littlest tells the troll that like he should wait for his older brother because his older brother is bigger, so he'd have more food. Um, his older brother does the same, and then the oldest brother like kicks the troll's ass. <laughs> I have ne- I've never once heard of that. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> moving on. This is where my week kind of devolves. Uh, so this was a Friday the Thirteenth weekend. <laughs> And I decided, you know what, I'm going to put aside all of my feelings towards this franchise, and I'm just going to watch them. So, started this off with Friday the 13th Part 3, which is made for 3D, and you can tell, like, there's scenes of, like, a yo-yo going close to the camera. Um, But, (laughs) I can't imagine what my reaction would have been seeing there is an eyeball that gets popped out of someone's socket and flies into the screen. If if I was in 3D, I think I'd lose my shit. Um, followed that up with Friday the 13th Part 4, the final chapter, which, believe it or not, is not the final chapter. Um, this has one of my favorite line drops ever because Jason is killing somebody and the guy just keeps yelling, He's killing me! He's killing me! <laughs> um, after that, Friday the 13th Part 5, A New Beginning. Um... No no real thoughts on that. Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, is, I think, my favorite of the franchise so far. Um, then I watched Part 7, which is The New Blood. That is my least favorite of the franchise. And Jason Takes Manhattan was incredibly underwhelming. It is... He, he's in Manhattan for, like, 15 minutes. <laughs> have you seen Jason X or Freddy vs. Jason, the two that Stockman has, like, posted about? I have seen Freddy vs. Jason. Uh, one of my good friends from Wesleyan said that was like one of his favorite movies growing up. <laughs> so <laughs> he put me onto it. I watched it last year. I thought it was okay. Um, I have not seen Jason X yet, though. But I am on Jason Goes to Hell right now. Jason X is next. You are running a a gross gauntlet. This is gritty. This is a gritty win. It is. <laughs> Six to no. three final Thursday night football kind of watch right here oh yeah um all right you ready to dive into the house of usher absolutely and i want to kick this off you know i was watching this show and i think i was about five six episodes in and it dawned on me that this was another bo is afraid for me at least i started to question it Mm. and what do i mean by that i want to start off by saying i like bo is afraid but it's wonky, and I think if I wasn't a huge um, Ari Aster fan, that I would not have liked Bo's Afraid. I would have watched it and been like, what the fuck is this? I think if I didn't love Flanagan and trust him and trust his vision, I think I would have gotten five, six episodes into this show and been like, what am I doing? I wasn't in love with this the same way I am with his other shows. Yeah, I texted you um, as soon as you finished watching it, and I said, this is Flanagan to House of Usher is Nolan to Tenet. It's uh, Aster to uh, Bo is Afraid. What was the other one I threw in there? That Those were the those were the notables. Zack Snyder to Zack Snyder's Justice League. Like, <laughs> this is, it is just a, a director doing something he really cares about, which is cool. 
Um, did you catch on to what Flanagan was doing, though? Because it took me, I think, like two or three episodes to realize, oh, this isn't just the fall of the House of Usher extended into whatever Flanagan imagines it. This is an amalgamation of, of Poe's short stories. What do you think? Yeah, I completely see where you're coming from. I just, I'm lazy and didn't do my homework on this stuff. I don't, like, when I watch on Netflix, I don't even bother reading the titles of the episodes. I don't read the synopsis. So there were no context clues for me. It's not like I've been diving into, you know, EAP in my time. So I, I, I trust you to backpack this theory. Uh, I mean, it's not really a theory. Um, the I don't want to spoil anything, but this is revealed in the first 15 minutes of the show that all of this man's kids have died um, over the last, like, six days. And so each episode is telling basically one one kid's death uh, throughout. And by kid, I mean, like, 20-some-year-old. Um, but the the characters all have their their illusions. So Arthur Pym, which is um, Mark Hamill's character, is pulled straight from the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, which is, I believe, Poe's only novel. Um, then Prospero, or Perry, as they call him from time to time in the show, they kind of switch, is The Mask of the Red Death, which is the title of his episode. Same thing with Camille, who is Kate Siegel. Um, she was Murders in the Rue Morgue. Leo uh, was the Black Cat and the Spectacles. Um, Victorine, the Telltale Heart and the Premature Burial. Tamerlan was Goldbug, Tamerlan, and William Wilson. That's right, even Bilt had his own <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe story. Um, Frederick had the Pit and the Pendulum, Metzengerstein and Morella, and then Roderick and Madeline, the two like main characters of the show, had obviously the Fall of the House of the Usher, um, the Raven, the Cask of Amontillado, and Annabelle Lee. So, I don't imagine that you're an Edgar Allan Poe fan, but I am. This okay. So, seeing these on the small screen was this fun for you? Like, how do you feel about it? I don't know. I think that if somebody were to ask me, "Hey, should I read?" the cask of Amontillado or should I watch episode seven of the fall of the house of Usher? I would 100% of the time say, read the cask of Amontillado. Like, I I don't know if he really got a a lot of these beats right in my mind. Um, the, the one that really jumps to mind is murders in the Rue morgue. This is widely believed to be the first detective story of all time. And it stars, um, what's the name of the like lawyer that, he's talking to the whole time arthur pym no uh august it it stars august and august is a detective in in that story that like basically just from reading the facts in the newspaper finds out that these two women were killed not by like their their lovers or their enemies or anything but just by an escaped orangutan who was frightened and killed them um and like you see how that kind of plays into Camille's story. The the victim in the in the story is also named Camille, and I, I just didn't really. I don't. I, as much as I love Monkey Possession, I think that really needs to be in more movies. I don't know if it was done right here. <laughs> so from my lens, you know, not 
looking into it from an interpretation perspective and just its own thing because that's how I watched it. I had mm-hmm. no base before this. I think what I love about Flanagan and his other shows like Hill House, like Blind Manor, like Midnight Mass is that although his characters are flawed, they're easier to latch on to, they're relatable, and like they're, they're people you want to root for. When it comes to this show, the, the Fall of the House of Usher, it's about these kids that you mentioned, but they're all the kids of this billionaire that's built this conglomerate and has allowed his kids to leech off of him. So it's just a bunch of rich assholes, and there is no one really to latch on to. There's a couple side characters, but at its core, like, I'm thinking Midnight Mass. We have Riley. We have the sheriff. Mm-hmm. Hill House. We, we have the boys, like, even though they're flawed, like, easy to root for. In Blind Manor, we have Danny. I don't I don't know if there's a main character in Usher to really lean on to and, and be invested in. And that's that's where this misses for me. Yeah, and honestly, through the first six episodes, I thought that Frederick was supposed to kind of be that guy. Um, and oh. then he just commits, like, unspeakable acts in the seventh. And I'm like, holy oh. shit. <laughs> yeah, the biggest, maybe the biggest asshole of them all are just psychopaths. Yeah, but I I wrote down a similar thing. I think the biggest issue in this is that I also hated all the characters. And Midnight Mass is by far, I think, the best of the Flanagan series. And maybe, I I think it's also farly above his his movie work. I I think that works because of Riley and uh, Kate Siegel's character. I'm not sure what her name is in the the show. Do you? Aaron, maybe? Uh, Oh, Aaron Green. Mm-hmm. without those two it doesn't work and you see riley as like you said this flawed guy who made a terrible mistake and he's haunted by that but maybe if roderick felt a little more remorse for what he did in this show it would be a little bit better the, the only character i really liked was lenore and she had like what 30 minutes of screen time maybe throughout the eight hours Lenore and Annabelle Lee, the two side mm-hmm. characters with the most heart. And that's that's addressed in the show, that they're essentially the same person. But they're sidelined. Like you don't have time to, to care. Another thing too is like you mentioned Midnight Mass, Riley and Aaron Green. I always go back to the, the canoe scene without giving yeah. anything away. We, like for Midnight Mass as well, I always go back to the sheriff scene explaining how he ended up on the island and what happened to him post 9-11. Mm-hmm. I, when I'm looking at Hill House, I go to the scene where the dad explains why he couldn't confess what happened with his mom and some things can't be told, like those special character moments. I'm having a really hard time identifying what those special character moments would be in this one. Yeah, I don't I don't think there are any. And you're a much bigger fan of Hill House and Bly Manor than I am. Um I, I think they're great, but my my real biggest issue with those shows is that he goes into this mechanic of, okay, actually each episode I'm gonna devote to one character, show their entire backstory up to where they are now, and advance the plot maybe five minutes. And I just don't think that works. Um like in the eight hours that I watched this show, I think I didn't care as much for Roderick as I did in the first 30 minutes of before sunrise for Ethan Hawke's character. Like 
I, I think there's something to be said because we talk so much about Flanagan being the king of horror and the guy who really nails the character development. Maybe he's not that guy. Uh, I mean, I think it takes a lot more skill to develop your characters in 30 minutes by not showing everything that happened to them, but by communicating some of that just visually and some of that through dialogue than it does by devoting an hour to an hour and 15 minutes to each and every character to show exactly why they are the person they are. A little pushback. I, I think that Flanagan is good at what he does and the slow unravel of his characters in Hill House and Blind Manor work because to what we've been talking about this whole time is that they're easy to latch on to and root for here. They're not that that's one point. And I think that's also my issue with Usher is I think Flanagan gets in his own way here. His love for Edgar Allan Poe and these stories that he's so committed to telling kind of got in the way here. I think there was maybe a way to twist this where these characters are some people that we can root for. Like maybe, Maybe the kids don't need to be assholes and it just all falls on Roderick. There's, mm-hmm. I think there was an angle to go here where it could have been another Hill House or Bly Manor. And it, it just didn't because he was so committed to making his passion project. Yeah. And like, uh, let's, for example, take if you're OK with diving into slight spoilers here. Um, let's take the example of Prospero in this. So in The Mask of the Red Death. Prospero is supposed to be like this very wise man and uh, this plague is like sweeping through the nation and so he gathers a bunch of people brings him them to his castle and then they throw parties everybody else is screwed but he is doing this as kind of like a way to preserve in in my opinion that's how I read the story and in this it's just the first time we see him he's laying on a bed with like six women passed out around him he is only talking about how much he wants to see, like, different people getting basically fucked. Like, he is a total D-bag to uh, his brother Frederick, which, that that's, I, I mean, Frederick ends up kind of deserving it in the seventh episode, but, I mean, he essentially gets his brother's wife to come to his party so that he can hopefully cheat with her to get revenge on his brother like that is why would you ever root for that character right diabolical that's my point is what what are we doing here i it just this type of storytelling doesn't work for this specific story that is my frustration with this one i i agree um i will say the performances across the board were great zach guilford deserves so much more work he is um young roderick in this He's phenomenal, man. Like I, I haven't seen him in a movie, and I had without thinking, like Jesus, why isn't this guy like an A-lister? The woman I don't know her name that plays Tammy, but also plays the asshole who's in Midnight Mass. She is so talented, man. Mm-hmm. He is so easy to fucking hate. She is, and the. The scene, I, I don't want to get into anything too deep again, but there is a scene where she's basically fighting herself, I think, is executed really well. That's one of the best moments of the show, probably. Um, also, Mark Hamill, what'd you think? I, I loved, I can't lie, I really liked his character. It, he is diabolical. He is an asshole. But his calculated way about going things and 
there's some subtle stuff that happens towards the end of the show. I maybe because it was Hamill. I just really like this character. I think it's pretty cool. It, it, I feel the same way. My sister is a lawyer, and all I could think about was just how sorry I would feel for for her if she was in charge of defending the ushers, just like over and over and over again. Um, and that's got to take a toll on the guy too, not to defend any of his actions. Um, soul to soul, but to it. To an extent, I feel like he feels like an obligation or a loyalty to the Usher family and to Roderick, which I thought was cool. Like, I think that was brought up briefly that um, Roderick was there for him from the start. And, like, he feels like a sense of, like, he owes it to him. He's a very loyal guy. Uh, saying anything else, I think, would give away some some really cool moments towards the end of the show. But I, I really like Hamill's character. Uh, yeah. There's another big call out. Completely unrelated to Hamill, but there is like an MCU-esque cameo <laughs> in one of the episodes, and it's mapping out like a, a certain character has met billionaires across the world, and one of the billionaires that plops on the desk is Mark Zuckerberg, and I thought that was the funniest thing ever. Is the social network canon in the, <laughs> house, the fall of the House of Usher? That's awesome. Possible. Um, I, I, do you have anything else or can we dive into spoilers here? Yeah, let's, let's dive head first. I'll, I'll start. I think this is an easy, easy way to start. I've, I've loved Flanagan for some of his, his big twists and I don't need to get into those for the, the other shows, but there've been some, some really solid twists. This one, I don't know if it was intentional, like, or supposed to be a twist, but saw it coming from a mile away. Am I way off the mark on that? Uh, what twist are you talking about? The fact that Verna is like death and Roderick sold his soul and it cost him his kids. Yeah, we talked about what Verna could be um, around episode three when when we were watching it. And I didn't want to spoil anything for you, but I put it together, I think, in episode four that Verna is just an anagram for Raven. Um, and obviously ravens throughout like all media have symbolized death. So I was like, oh, okay, well, that's just kind of lame. Um, and then we talked about the, the like kind of Faustian deal that the two make with selling his soul for the profit that also I saw from a mile away. I thought you were going to say the twist I saw coming from a mile away too is, um, Lenore being like the texting and it was all going to say nevermore, like, I thought that was corny. As soon as um, I saw the daughter was named Lenore, I knew that it, it, that was going to happen. Yeah, I honestly, I didn't expect her to die until we saw the flashback of Verna explaining, like, your bloodline will die. I was like, ah, shit, Lenore's toast. I will say, there was one twist that I really enjoyed. It's very brief, but in the first episode, Roderick is in the church, turns to Lenore and says she's here and it's supposed to be verna that's what you think the whole show but it's actually his ex-wife annabelle lee and he has yeah. that moment with her in the church i thought that was a great scene one of like yeah. the only few moving scenes in this show that really uh, struck a chord with me that was awesome um I, I do have just a quick question now that you bring up scenes in the church what do you think was the scariest scene in this show because there the, really aren't a, a ton. Easily. 
easily number one for me. It comes, I believe, in the finale where Roderick is in the basement and he hears the, the jingle. And you've been hearing it every episode. Like, what the hell is that jingle bell? And, like, the, the jester, like, pops up, like, right by his shoulder. That one scared yeah. the shit out of me. I None of the jump scares really got me. Just thinking about, and this is the only thing that I think the Casco Amontillado story did really well, is um, thinking about just being stuck to live the rest of your life behind a brick wall and, like, watching them put up the bricks, I think, oh. is horrifying. Thank God that happened to the biggest asshole in the show. Otherwise, I would have been <laughs> sick to my stomach. Another, like, dark moment like that, I believe it was episode, was it five, where it was the open heart one? Mm-hmm. That was very traumatizing. Just the whole concept and seeing that daughter lose her mind, uh, really hard to watch. Dude, just literally put in the arc reactor. Just ask <laughs> Tony. Um, <laughs> I will say, too, um, I, I found myself literally yelling at Roderick to stop beating around the bush and just, like, get on with it. Um, I wrote down in my notes here that he is worse than the guy from How I Met Your Mother. Like, <laughs> it felt like eight seasons of just him being like, yeah, you know, this one thing went wrong 13 years ago, and that's why today I'm meeting with you and telling you that I murdered all my kids. And it's like... <laughs> what an asshole, dude, of course. And it's like, even self-aware, Augie, the entire show is like, dude, I'm going to leave. Yeah. Please. Where is this confession you were telling me about? Just do something. Um, another storyline, though. I, I hated the the frame story in general. I don't know how you felt about it. Why spoil? I, and I feel this way about pretty much all frame stories. Why spoil the ending? Like, we know Roderick is going to be alive, and we know that his six kids are going to die. So I also think that makes it a lot easier to not invest in the characters when you know that any of or each of them are going to die in the next six episodes. Correct. I, it just didn't work for me for mm-hmm. a lot of reasons. The Flanagan formula does not work with this particular story. I think that's the thing that we'll keep driving home. Yeah. And another thing too, I think that Flanagan touches on big themes in all of his shows. And yes, are they bare bones? Yes, but it's not frustrating. It's done well in those three. With Usher, it's kind of cheesy that the mm-hmm. final like message is, you know, money isn't shit. It's about building family and having people you love in your life. And the way it's executed at the very end of the show, like, it was really gross. Like, I, I expect better from Flanagan. Yeah, the last two episodes, there are a couple of moments where I was like, wow, this is getting pretty pretty preachy here. It's just like either there's a scene in the basement that springs to mind with Madeline and Roderick where Madeline's just talking about how she's like going out as a queen, blah, 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 blah. And she starts just preaching about like income inequality and all this shit. And it's like you could have just like shown this throughout the show instead of just telling your audience like actually, yeah. And there, there was one movie that really frustrated me that was like, no, let's put uh, 
all this money into movies, but if you took like 5% of the movie budget for a year and put it into stopping world hunger, and it's like, all right, man, cut the budget. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck off. (laughs) Don't act like you're holier than thou. Don't act like you're, you're better than us making it than we are for watching it. Like, (laughs) give me a fucking break. No, it's the more we talk about it. It's not even, it's barely a Bo's afraid cop because at least it's, it's competent in what it's mm-hmm. I feel like it's very well made. Like there's yeah. no, no flaws like that story wise. Is it bonkers? Yes, but there's no cheesy elements in my opinion. This is this is just yeah. getting more frustrating as we talk through it. And and like you said, the cheesy ending, I wrote down the quote. It's the last quote in the show that's in dialogue fashion. And it's <laughs> Augie walking away saying I'm the richest man in the world. Dude, that's like from a 1940s movie. That's like, it's a wonderful life shit. Hey, watch your mouth, all right? I know, we've, we've I know. Been on a roll. We've been on a roll here. We agree on the show. Yeah, I'm going to check you right there. No, no, no. I'm not saying that as a jab at It's a Wonderful Life. I'm saying it just as a, like, this has been around for 80 years. Yeah. Give me a break. Total cornball moment that Flanagan can do way better. Yeah. Um, last thing that I was really bothered by, what did you think of the AI storyline? <laughs> I mean, half-baked. It, it wasn't really fleshed out. And even if it was, I, uh, gross. I don't know. It felt, like, I, it felt like he was in post-production and Netflix was like, hey, you hear about ChatGPT? And he was like, <laughs> fuck, and wrote yeah. it into the show. <laughs> like, yeah. Like yeah, like I said, half baked. But there, there could have been something interesting there, in the sense that maybe Madeline, this was her game plan all along. Like, okay, you're gonna take my bloodline away, but we're, we're gonna live forever. I'm gonna cheat death. That would have been a cool concept to explore, but it's not explored in that way. It just no. used some half baked twist for Lenore's character, right? And. A twist that could have easily just been done as, oh, it's her ghost texting me or some shit. Like, right. he's been seeing ghosts every episode. Yeah, um, that was I, another I, thing too. I, I like when the scares aren't expected, or like at least there's like some big tension moment. Mm-hmm. These abrupt one-off jumps for each episode, signaling one of the, one of the characters' deaths, just didn't work for me. It's addressed in the show by Augie and Roderick they talk about it but that didn't work for me either yeah it it didn't work for me either um the the one that I really got frustrated with and I didn't have to read a ton of Poe for high school but I did read recreationally so some of these tales slipped under my radar but when I saw episode five is named Telltale Heart I was like well now I know everything that's gonna happen so do I even bother watching? And I, I did. And it was one of the stronger episodes of the show. But maybe even if he changed the episode names, I, I don't know. Yeah, well, for me, I I never look at the episode names. I, I won't read the synopsis. That's how I am with every show. But I don't know. Look, I, I think we just keep coming back down the, the same rabbit holes. This, this show wasn't what we expected and what we hoped for. And I think one one thing to drive home is that a big issue with the show is 
the characters not being likable, which leads us to what I had the most fun putting together was a segment that you created. We'll be ranking the characters from worst people ever to tolerable. <laughs> Steve, please kick us off. I, I, I kind of just want to do list for list here. I yeah, think, I, I think we're going to be pretty aligned here. Um, at 14 for me is Madeline. I thought she was irredeemable in every way throughout the show. She didn't even show like a, an ounce of remorse for any of her actions. Um, 13, I have Frederick. What he did to his wife is despicable. If, if you guys haven't seen it, like it is horrific. Um, that said, Frederick did have a moment that really made me think of Ty. He goes to his brother and asks to <laughs> buy drugs. And this is all I can imagine of what Ty would look like if he tried to make a drug deal at some point in his life. He walks in and he's just like cheesing ear to ear. Can I have some Coke? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how it went down. So Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> at 12, I have Camille. She just shows no soul. Um, 11 is Victorine. They've kind of mentioned this, that she is like Camille, but hides it better. Um, at 10 is Griswold. His boss at the pharmaceutical company at first is just a horrible person. Number nine is Roderick. Um, I saw some redeeming factors a little bit throughout this for him, but still a horrible person. At eight, I have Tamerlan, who would have been higher until she just, like, ruined Bill's life for fun. Um, that was yeah. bad. <laughs> Seven is Prospero, because being debaucherous doesn't necessarily mean that he's a terrible person. Um, six, I have Leo. Five, Verna. Um, death can't really be that that low or that high on this list, I think. At four, I have Juno, who is the new wife of Roderick and is like a junkie um, for this uh, drug that he's come up with, but doesn't really, or she's trying to get off of it. At three, Augie, thought he was pretty good start to finish, but had some questionable moments here and there. And then at two, I have Annabelle Lee, but it's really a 1A and 1B because at number one, I have Lenore. These two are, like you said, pretty much the same character. And honestly, my list is pretty similar to that. Yeah, only one or two notable changes, top to bottom. But at at my one, I have Madeline. She is, I know that her and Roderick are supposed to be one entity. But I think that if Madeline wasn't around, I don't think Roderick ends up the monster that he is. But we'll get there. Um, Madeline at the one spot. At my two spot, this is where it differs. I think that Griswold had the potential to be one. If he if he wasn't buried alive, I so I'm gonna go I'm gonna go Griswold. He was a fucking asshole. Um, <laughs> then I'd go Camille, then Victorine, then Roderick, uh, Tammy, Prospero, and then I think this is where we differ. This is where we differ because then I have Juno, Verna, Bill. I don't think Bill was on your list, but Bill he was, was a good. Bill was a good guy. He was just yeah. trying to do right by his wife, and she was a dick to him. I felt <laughs> bad for Bill. Um, Morella at the four spot. Augie at the three. Good dude. Just, you know, always always fighting. Always fighting. 
Um, and then same for me, 1A, 1B, Annabelle Lee and Lenore. Fair enough. Um, I, I did just like think this through. Um, I forgot to put this in my notes. The sex in this show is just fucking insane from start oh. to finish. Yeah. Gross. Um, so yeah. gross. Tamerlan has some whole other shit going on. <laughs> she uh, she was living on X videos as a 15-year-old. She is completely mm-hmm. desensitized. Camille is, like, basically has si- hired her interns just to have sex with her. <laughs> that, too. Mm-hmm. That, too. And that talk- yeah, she was an asshole. Uh, I think we have her high enough, but... yeah. just just bad um start to finish but the other thing i have and i didn't write this down because i wanted to catch you off guard first off would you take the deal would you sell your basically commit to having a long life but then your children your whole family dies when you die for infinite prosperity zero percent chance and i I do shame on Verna for, for framing it that way of like, oh, well, your kids could have everything they want until they're 50 and then they're toast. Um, I don't know. Like, maybe it's just my mindset and what we're trying to do with Blast here, but I've always been in the camp of I believe in myself. I'm going to get this done. Like, fuck you. I don't need to sell my soul. I'm going to I'm gonna make this happen no matter what. Um, that's fair. So that, that, that's where I stand. Do you have a a different take i think i would do it for reasons too um (laughs) first off i don't plan on having kids and that's that's the big one um but secondly i think with all that fortune like you could actually if if you're a good person like i try to be uh you could do a lot of good for the world like you could end all this shit that flanagan's preaching about in the show world hunger and uh, homelessness like you could probably do all that with with this deal um so i i think i'd take it that said when verna offers the deal like (laughs) roderick almost cuts her off to say yeah (laughs) like he is over the moon doesn't give it a second thought yes (laughs) i couldn't believe that i was like really dude you're just gonna say yes in like a second and just go with it and and he already has kids. Like, he, didn't even have, he didn't even question it. Like, yeah, poor Freddy. He's dead. <laughs> Sorry, pal. You know what? If it gets me a caddy, I'm in. <laughs> like, <laughs> this dude's focused on just playing as many rounds at Whistling Straits as he can. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you're telling, you're telling me I can, I can build a at-home movie theater? deal <laughs> I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get all my boys like pickleball courts for their houses and just, just help with yeah but forget having kids let's just let's just let's just build our friends lives so that they can have a legacy and really cheat the system yeah well uh freddie you're you're gonna live till you're 35 but <laughs> you get to uh have a child who will also die when you're 35 and a bowling alley in your kitchen that's gonna play (laughs) it's ridiculous i just 
I, I, it circles back to the character thing, and I don't want to be redundant. Um, but that's really all my thoughts on the show. Uh, I was pretty disappointed with this. Where does this fall in your rankings? Obviously, we haven't seen Midnight Club. I don't know how that flew under our radar. But between Midnight Mass, Bly Manor, and Haunting of Hill House, let's let's hear your rankings of the four. Okay. At the one spot, Midnight Mass pretty easily. And then at the two spot, close. Closer than you may think. Uh, Haunting of Hill House. And then there's a drop. Haunting of Bly Manor. And then there's a steep drop for Fall, Fall of the Ushers. Fair. Um, I'm kind of similar i have midnight mass as like an s tier and then probably in b tier i have bly manor and then hill house and then i'm gonna put this in like a c minus or a d tier of uh follow the house of usher yeah and that's the other thing too not to go on another tangent but it wasn't even like a a blast show like with hill house with midnight mass there there's something one like it was an event watching a new episode, but I felt like I was learning something or feeling something at, at any given moment. I, I didn't have any of those, you know, checks with this show. So just a big disappointment. Yeah, the only scene that I think I f- would find myself revisiting is um, the life when life gives you lemon speech, because I thought that was funny. I thought it was really well executed. And it's just like. Yep, this is this is Gary V. <laughs> <laughs> I I would revisit the Annabelle Lee scene in the church. Yeah, that's I fair. Think that, that's my scene. That one's gonna make me turn into Batman and go to the gym. I'll tell you what. Um, as as I close out this pod, if you're okay with that, I would really encourage you to go and look up um his poem on Annabelle Lee. And it is his last poem. It is heartbreaking, and I think you're going to love it. Oh, man. New PR at the gym incoming. I cannot wait. wait. All right. Uh, Thank you all for listening to this episode of The Blast Podcast. I had some fun watching the show, a lot more fun discussing it with Ty, as always. And make sure to go check out our website at blastmovies.net and uh, stay up to date with all of our content, all of the news on the app, which is coming sooner than you think. And catch you guys next week. 